I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3 as we continue to study this beautiful testimony to the love of God through our Savior Jesus Christ. This morning our passage uh, is familiar to those of you who are Bible students. Uh, we again see John the Baptist. If you were here prior to the Christmas holidays, uh, Camper introduced John the Baptist to us in what is known as to Bible students and Bible scholars as John's inaugural address. It has absolutely nothing to do with what we uh, saw take place in our country last week. But in the inaugural address where John the Baptist comes on the scene and declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Make no mistake, that was one, Jesus Christ, and he was not physically present in Washington, D.C. on Friday. What we see this morning is known as John's valedictory address. It's his second time speaking that we have recorded in John's Gospel. And as amazing as the inaugural address was, most Bible scholars say that the valedictory address is even more stunning. It certainly is full of application for us, turning our attention not only to uh, the glory of our God, uh, but giving us a wonderfully practical foundation for our own spiritual lives. So as we prepare to come to God's word this morning, our reading will begin in verse 22. Before we read, let's go to our God in prayer. But Father, we do thank you that you have given to us testimony, multiple testimonies to the person of Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he means, and who we are in relation to him. And I pray now that as we come, we would continue to worship you in, in a way that we may not even consider worship. For you are worthy to receive the praises that we offer to you through song and declaration. And you alone are the one who can answer our prayers, and so we acknowledge you as sovereign when we pray to you. But even now as we come, we worship you by giving to you our ear, our minds, and even our hearts. And we are then reminded that in worship we cannot outgive you. For while we come to praise and honor you in our midst, where you are present, you speak to us, you bless us, you guide and direct us. And we pray that you would do that even now as we take these moments to consider your word. May they result in your people being renewed in your grace, strengthened for the callings that you've placed upon us, that we, along with those that we may bless, will join together for the praise of your glory and grace. We pray all this in the name of Christ, our Redeemer, our King. Amen. A reading this morning, John 3, verse 22. I'm going to read through verse 30. I know our bulletin says 36, but for the sake of time, to, uh, I'm only going to deal with verse th up to verse 30, so we'll come back to the other part at another time. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Anon uh, near Salim because the water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put into prison. 
Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The word of God's word to us. May he bless us, granting us not only understanding, but shaping us according to it. Most of us manage to go through a good portion of our lives without having our view of life seriously challenged. That is until some event comes along and calls everything that we have believed into question. And then we all become like George Bailey from the movie It's a Wonderful Life and we begin to wonder whether or not there was any matter, doesn't matter at all whether or not we had spent our time here on earth, we may wonder whether there's any evidence that God actually cares for us. At those times we are shaken to our core, regardless of what it looks like on the outside. Uh, we are undone. We, we don't feel on firm foundation. And that's an experience that's common to most, if not all. If it's an experience you haven't yet had, chances are one day you'll have it at least one time because there are circumstances in life that do shake us and call us to question everything that we believe and everything that we are about. But now for a moment, consider yourself or consider for yourselves John the Baptist, particularly at the time that's recorded in our text. John the Baptist was born into a prominent family. His father was a respected priest. His mother was born into, of, of noble uh, lineage. Uh, and so he grew up with what we would consider a, a well-to-do, middle-class uh, household. And it would have been a quite comfortable life had John followed in his father's footsteps. He could have gone on, been a priest, married, had kids, joined the country club, just you know, had a, a good, normal, respected and respectable life and still honoring God uh, with the way that he lived and all that he did. The exception is that John from his birth had been set apart. His parents had, in covenant with God, had play, made a vow known as a Nazarite vow, which means they dedicated John to God beyond what we would consider to be the norm. John was set apart that his life would be for God and only for God and demonstrated uh, as a demonstration, as an example to everybody else that there is a God, that God does care, that we belong to him, and he deserves our all. He, John's life was committed to that, and John was faithful to that call. And as such, he lived a life that was apart and different from everybody else. His expression of faithfulness, we see, is evidenced in the way he dressed. The scriptures tell us that his normal attire was to wear camel hair. His diet was uh, different than most people's. It was consisted of, we are told, of locusts and honey. 
And John lived alone, for the most part, out in the wilderness. It's not that he had no contact with people, but he didn't live in the company, in the fellowship of people like most of us not only do, but crave and would be fearful if we did not. John lived his life with an intense fellowship and communion with God. And while for those who have spiritual hunger and, and have committed themselves to God, that might sound appealing and certainly is worthy, it also came with a significant price. Though John was respected by the masses and they wanted to come and hear him, and he was blessed by God and was effective in his unique calling and his unique message, reminding people that God is holy, we are not, and no matter what we might think of God, we are not by our own nature prepared to come into his presence. And much of what we call worship is really just lip service, and therefore there's a need for each of us to repent and prepare ourselves to receive the coming of God, to receive his blessing in our lives. Many people repented and they were baptized with uh, what's known as the baptism of repentance. And they would call others to come and hear this guy speak. He was admired, not only because of his entertainment value as a speaker, but because of the power of his message. But as many people were drawn to him and wanted to come hear him speak, very few people connected with him. Despite what people thought of him, he's not the kind of guy that you were going to bring home to dinner. Even if you had a single daughter or a single niece who's gotten beyond the normal marrying age, you didn't say, hey, you know, so-and-so, it would be good for her to meet a godly young man, you know, who just dresses with camel hair. I mean, frankly, there would be one appeal. You can bring them to dinner, and it would be cheap. I mean, how much do locusts cost? A little locust, a little honey. It would certainly be gluten-free. I don't know if that's heavy protein or anything else. So, I mean, you would think that, but nobody was going to do that because the commitment that he had made, the calling upon his life, though God was with him and there was power, he just made people uncomfortable and therefore was not really in the same kind of connection with other people. He had paid a price for his faithfulness, although not only did people respect him, God honored him, and even Jesus described John as being the greatest man born of a woman walking the face of the earth. And so in many ways, we see how different he was, but Jesus' summary is he's, he's the best man. So if there was anybody who should feel that they can expect God's blessing, if we were to look at John's life and think if there's anybody who has lived that we would expect the hand of God to continue to be upon them and to bless them, John the Baptist would seem to be that guy. And yet when we come to this passage, a few things begin to shake some of us, one of which we are confronted with the reality that God's idea of blessing is not what many of us consider to be blessing. In other words, when we pray, Lord, bless us, we are not asking for what we see happening in John's life in this passage as it's unfolding before us and even what happens in John's life as it comes later. And nevertheless, we know that God is faithful to all things. He's faithful to John, and John understood that. 
which is amazingly evident in this text before us. Now, here's the situation. John had been faithful. God's hand was upon him. But as we read in our text, the time had come where Jesus and his followers had come back into the same neighborhood where uh, John the Baptist was ministering. The Bible is amazingly practical here. The reason that they came back is because there was plenty of water. I mean, that, was, uh, that, that made a lot of sense. It wasn't that they marked it out and did the demographic study and said, here's the strategic neighborhood. There was plenty of water. People could come out and they could, could be baptized. So now you had not one group but two groups baptizing people coming out in the same neighborhood. Now, we're told that one of the Jewish leaders, probably a Pharisee, came out and began talking with some of the disciples that were still with John the Baptist. He was curious. You're both declaring the same message. You're both baptizing in the same way, and the baptisms have the same significance, so which one is better? I mean, why waste your time going to the one that is just kind of, why go to the minor leagues when you can go to the major leagues? And the disciples who no doubt had been noticing a trend, um, this kind of unnerved them. It unhinged them. And they began to grow jealous and angry because they were hurt. And so they go to John the Baptist and say, you know this guy that, whose ministry you launched, the one who you gave the endorsement to by declaring, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, it was fine when he went away. But now he's back and he's stealing all of our business. He's taking all of our sheep and his light is eclipsing yours. It's very easy to understand the attitude the disciples had. They had also committed to be with John. They had sacrificed in some ways. They, they loved the Lord, which is why they were with John. And they were fully committed to him, but clearly they didn't yet understand. And it's quite evident the reason they went to him is he wanted something to be done. Maybe John would go back and tell the guy to go move your, you know, your lemonade stand someplace else. This is our neighborhood. This is our territory. We'll be on the same page as long as we can do it in separate places. But the disciples of John the Baptist had misunderstood and John's response is absolutely amazing, not only in the sense of humility that it demonstrates in this person, but with the wisdom that he also offers to his disciples and to those of us who are listening in. Because in the words that we read in verses 27 through 30, we find John gives to us four pillars upon which we can build lives that are full and that are unshakable. Wisdom that comes from an understanding of God's plan, our place in it, and the promises of the gospel. I don't usually say take notes, but for, at least for the headings, at least make a mark. The irony is, is, as we looked at the bulletin this week, this is the first time in weeks that we didn't give you a page to put notes on. So I don't know where you're going to put them, but take notes. Um, the first pillar that we see is this. There is a freedom that comes from recognizing that everything we have comes to us as a gift. It's so the first thing that John says, we see it in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. 
And so it's important that we understand that there's a freedom that comes from understanding that everything we have is a gift. It's also important that we understand that it's our failure to recognize that reality that makes us susceptible to all sorts of problems in our lives. Because we either recognize that reality, that everything that we have comes to us as a gift, or the alternative, no matter how it expresses itself, is simply some manifestation of pride. Either everything comes to us as a gift, or everything we have, we have earned and we have deserved. Which may puff us up and make us feel self-sufficient, as if we can take care of ourselves. It's nice that God is there, but we can stand on our own two feet. Or it could lead us to disillusionment and discouragement and even a spiritual depression because we don't feel like we have what we ought to have and then wondering what is the problem with us? What have I done wrong? Why am I being punished? Both of those are expression of pride. Pride is not only the puffed up and thinking yourself superior. Spiritual depression, I'm not talking about the chemical aspect with some of you that struggle with that, but the spiritual depression is simply pride turned inward on yourself. And that's the alternative to recognizing that everything is a gift. And we need to recognize that pride is sinister. Pride is the one sin that is beneath every other sin. Historically speaking, we see pride in God's uh, world. It was pride that led Lucifer, who was known as the angel of light, the, the morning star. It was his pride that made him declare war on God and become his enemy. It was pride that led our first parents, Adam and Eve, to turn from God because they wanted to be like God. And it's pride in our lives that so often will lead us away from experiencing God's presence and God's blessing, either because of our willingness to stand on our own two feet or because we feel God is distant as we are discouraged. And Jerry Bridges, the prolific writer with the Navigators, wrote in, in his book, Respectable Sins, which I highly recommend. But there's another expression of pride that we often don't consider, and it's a spiritual pride. And what Bridges points out is that in the church, most of us don't even consider that to be a pride issue or, or, or a problem. It, just, it certainly doesn't seem to be as big of an issue for us as the sins of the flesh because it's not as easily evident, although the irony being sins of the flesh are simply the manifestations of our pride. That's the way that we act because we believe we deserve something. But Bridges points out that the spiritual pride is probably the most common sense of pride and maybe even the most common sin of people who are committed to God and evident in the church. And one of the ways he said that it is evident, whether it is true in our lives or within our communion, is the pleasure that we take as we describe how awful the society around us is or is becoming. I think Bridges is right that if we take delight in describing how bad things are, we seem to be ignoring the fact that we are part of that and that we ourselves are broken and we are contributors one way or the other. But whether it's the expressions of pride that we recognize to be a problem, whether it is the spiritual pride that seems uh, so, so benign, 
we do need to recognize that pride is still the source of all of our sins. And so it's important that we ask the question and become aware, how is it that we guard ourselves from pride in any respect? And the answer is what John is saying here. The first thing is to recognize that which we have, everything that we have, comes as a gift from God. Now, some of those gifts are very transient in their values. We, living in the midst of a particular culture and society and in historical time, there are certain things that we just consider to be valuable. Some that seem to be evident in a lot of different cultures, but still ultimately only have their place, one of which the most visible is, is beauty. In our culture and in many cultures, we tend to value that which is beautiful. Women and men who just turn heads wherever they go, for some reason they are given a deference and, and held in, in a higher esteem than people who don't, have not been endowed in that same way. And it's not even those who are grown up, but the same is true even from a very early age. When Carolyn was a teenager, she and her friend were keeping the nursery at their home church and one, the mother of her friend, a godly woman, as she was giving them the final instructions and turning over the nursery to these 13-year-olds, said, make sure you play with the ugly babies too. <laughs> now that sounded horrible to me when Carolyn first told me that that, that was uh, for two reasons. One is that she was even making the distinction and then, you know, why would she think that my wife would not care about the ugly ones? But um, fortunately for me, she likes ugly things. But anyway, that's... Um, <laughs> But studies have told us that even infants in, whether it's hospital nurseries or church nurseries, they get more attention. It's not a conscious thing, but nurses tend to give attention to the attractive children, and in the nursery, the same thing is happening. And it's because there's just something in us that is drawn to, and we elevate, and we consider beauty that is something to be valued, as if beauty itself says something about the inherent worth of the person or about the person's character. We know that it's foolish. There's some truth in the old saying that says, the face that we have at 20, we are given. But the face we have at 50 is what we've earned. There was a commercial years ago, uh, actress Sybil Shepherd. so unless you're 40 and over, you have no idea who I'm talking about, but you can roll with it anyway. I don't know if it was a hair product or whatever, she came on. She said, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. I had nothing to do with it. Thank my parents. I have no idea whether she believes that or knows that or she was just paid to say that, but she's on to sort of what John is getting at here. It's, it's an example of a transient value. It's a gift. And yet the idea of beauty, that will change the, the standards. Those will change the, the, the value importance. That will change. It still has a gift. It has its place. But it, it, it doesn't say anything about the worth of the person. We could say the same other thing in terms of the typical cultural historical standards in warrior cultures. It's the, you know, the, the physical stud who is the valued person over the intellectual. But in technological culture, it is the computer geek that people like and against the person who is the physical specimen. These are values that, these are gifts that each of them are given. But in a culture, we tend to look at people as if those attributes measure them in some way. And what John here is telling us, not about those specific characteristics, those are but illustrations, is that whatever asset you have, it is a gift that comes from God. We need to recognize that, and there is a place for it, because not only do we need to recognize in a way to guard ourselves from pride that anything that we may have is a gift from God, but God, who is sovereign, is 
knitting together a people for his purposes, and as such, he is distributing different gifts to different people in order to accomplish his purpose. It's the world that elevates the same gifts. God says that there's a purpose and a place for everyone, and he has given you each a gift or combination of gifts in order that you can play your part in his body or in his temple. And so we need to guard against the issue of pride by knowing not only is it a gift, but God has given every one of us an inheritance. But we also have all received a broken inheritance. It's the dysfunction that we see in this world that leads us to discouragement, that tempts us to wander away from God. And sometimes we wonder then, why did I get stuck with these gifts? Why didn't I get the other gifts? And it it contributes to our dysfunction. Or if you have been endowed with the ones that are valued, difficult to consider yourself just like everybody else. It's important that we understand God does not hold us responsible so much for the hand that we are dealt as he does hold us responsible for the way we play the hand that we are dealt. This is what John the Baptist seemed to understand. While his star was getting eclipsed, he understood that it made no difference. When he's experienced with a gift, God's gifts continue to go, and he was playing a role in God's redemptive plan. And so whether he had a name for himself or whether his gifts were valued by others, John was rooted in the understanding God is faithful and has given him a gift, and God is free to do whatever he wants with that gift. The second pillar that we see that John seems to understand for us is, is this. There is a stability that comes from rightly recognizing our relationship to Christ. And John says two things in here that would indicate that to us. First, as we see, we're just kind of working our way down the page in verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have come before him. In other words, I told you long ago that he was greater than I am. And that my whole purpose was to point to him. This never was about me. It's never about whether I aspired to be on top, if I worked hard enough and preached what people wanted to hear, whether they would come to me and instead of coming to him. It's always been about understanding who I am and how I relate to him. And then he goes on and he tells us a more or better way of how he relates. He understands part of his, his role was to relate to him as the one who came before and prepared the way. And then he introduces us to a wedding metaphor, which is really important for us to understand both as John is explaining his understanding of his role, and for us to understand our relationship to Jesus Christ as well. See, John is using an imagery that we all understand. We've all seen or participated in weddings. And John, by introducing us to this metaphor, is pointing out the players, and he's saying, See, Jesus is the groom, and the people that are flocking to him, which is the church, all who believe in him from every time, every nation, every people, 
the people who believe in him, the invisible church, they are the bride. And scripture is full of this analogy, often showing how unworthy we, the bride, are. But John is saying all the people who are going, they're supposed to go to him because he's the groom. And John introduces himself as nothing but the best man. And so in one sense, we see John as the best man in two different ways. He's the best man who's ever lived, and he's the best man in this particular wedding. And so he recognizes, and he's giving us two identities that we need to recognize here, both for him and for ourselves. Because he is reminding us that his whole purpose in relationship to Jesus was as the best man to make sure that the bride and the groom came together and that everything went according to plan. That's what the best man does. And as one who is like us, he also is in need of trusting and therefore being part of the bride himself. Because one of the best illustrations of our relationship with God that is found anywhere in the scriptures is that of the wedding, that Jesus is the groom, the, the church, the people that God is calling. He's preparing a bride for his son, and we are united and become one in Christ. Theological phrase is union with Christ. And that's vitally important to understand because of our, to, to give us a stability. See, many Christians live their lives as if the essence of Christianity is just to live your life pretty much like everybody else does, except avoid doing anything that might be particularly scandalous. Go to church, go on mission trip, tithe. Do some things over and above what the average person might do. And we do that because it's part of what we signed up for. It's the commitment that we've made to be Christians. And as we continue in this, we realize it's worth doing because there are benefits to our life by being part of the Christian community and walking in God's ways. But we need to understand is that is just simply religion. And while there are benefits to religion, pretty much any religion that can give stability and, and structure and blessing to your life, one thing religion cannot do is reconcile you to God. Not even Christianity can reconcile you to God. The only thing that can reconcile us to God is Jesus Christ himself. And when we live as if religion is expressed by what we do rather than who we are in our relationship to Christ, we constantly are subject to the storms of life and they make us feel unstable depending on their severity or our particular strength. And John introduces this metaphor of the wedding to help us to grasp the beauty and the significance of the relationship. And you can imagine it as a minister, I have the opportunity to sometimes stand up in the front and as the wedding is taking place, you have the best seat in the house. And it's a very common thing to stand up front and you're with the groom who's shaking out of his shoes. And as a friend of mine described uh, a wedding that he had done and even had the nerve to say when they came up, the bride had come up and he began and just said, you know, as you were coming down the aisle, I, I saw his eyes as he was just looking at the way that you radiated coming up and in his mind was never change. But of course, we know that time will change, change her. And then he looked at the bride and said, as you were coming up, I watched you look at the, at the groom, and I know going through your mind was, I hope he changes. 
And for those of you who are students and not yet married, he's not going to change. Um, just get that out of the way right now. So imagine she grasped that somewhere up the aisle and just bypassed the one who was a groom and then took off with the best man. I mean, even in our culture, we would consider that to be something quite scandalous. Now, if you happen to be somebody who found your spouse and that's what happened, I'm not making a moral judgment on you right now <laughs> because it's not necessarily wrong in our culture for that to happen, but I guarantee you people were talking about you when it happened. And so even though it wasn't morally wrong in our culture, if that's what's going to happen, in ancient Eastern culture, that was scandalous. It wasn't going to happen. The best man is there for one purpose, to make sure the wedding goes through. He guards the bride. He makes sure the groom shows up. And when he hears the groom show up, that's as John says in a moment, that's when he rejoices because that's his purpose. And the whole metaphor is to remind us that the essence of Christianity is rooted in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not based on our performance. That's a byproduct. It is based on the fact that Jesus loved us. God prepared us, brings us into union with Christ in a way that cannot be separated. Our relationship to Jesus Christ is as his beloved bride, whether we are worthy or not. And it is that understanding that gives us a stability when we have failed, when we are being faithful and things seem to be going different than we think ought to be right. It's what John seemed to understand. He understood his relationship. And we need to understand that relationship as well. The third thing that we see that John tells us is pillar of life. We already recognize that there is a freedom that comes from recognizing everything is a gift. Second, there is a stability that comes from rightly understanding our relationship to Jesus. Third, there is a joy that comes from hearing the voice of our Lord. That's what John says still in the wedding metaphor, and he's talking about at the end of the wedding, and we see at the end of verse 28, excuse me, 29, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In other words, the fact that Jesus was proclaiming and people were going to him is actually what brought joy to John the Baptist. It was his purpose. Just as the best man, whether he introduced the bride and the groom, he has fulfilled his purposes. And when the I do's are declared, he has a joy. Even simply hearing the voice of the one he loves, of his friend who has entrusted this to him, he says, I don't have joy, but it's complete. I just like hearing his voice. Now, some may say, okay, that's fine, but what in the world has that got to do with us? I mean, are we going to hear God speaking like John the Baptist heard Jesus' physically, physical voice? I mean, I know in some traditions, particularly among conservative Reformed Presbyterians, the whole idea just makes people shudder. It kind of freaks them out. God's going to actually talk to us, and so we convince ourselves that God doesn't speak, except for we'll just study and read this book, except that God continues to speak. But on the other side of the equation, we have other people who seem to think that everything that comes into their head is a message from the Holy Spirit. I remember reading a prominent evangelical writer and, and teacher, and one of the things that she was saying is she had gone through a struggling at a time, and one day as she was driving, God just said to her, let's go play at the zoo today. Now, I can't prove that God didn't say, let's go play at the zoo today. I can say that seems way <laughs> more trivial than the things that I know that God has said throughout history. And I know that God would probably, if he's, she's hers, calling to himself and there's an intimacy. But this particular author just constantly talks as if God's her BFF and everything that comes to her mind is coming from the Holy Spirit. And that's just not the case. 
And so we live in a Christian culture where we're on the one side, people who are freaked out by the whole idea that God might speak, and that's a lot of us. And you got other people who think everything that pops into their head must be God and the Holy Spirit, when the truth is really neither of those. God continues to speak, and he speaks to us, and we're told over and over again by the scriptures in three different ways. He speaks through creation that continually testifies that there is a God, that he is glorious and majestic and powerful and any number of other things that the creation testifies to us about our God. He speaks to us through this book, through his word, which is fully inspired by his spirit and given to us, every bit of it, not just the little pretty red ones, every word here is from God. And he continues to speak to us by his spirit, which we theologically would call as part of our sanctification not revelation, but the illumination of God as he takes the truth of his word and applies it to our particular circumstances as he speaks to us in subtle ways. And while it's just very difficult, we also can learn to understand and distinguish the voice of God from whatever else pops into our own heads. And not only can we, but there is a practical value in doing so. And we learn to understand and to distinguish the voice of God and to hear the voice of God the same way we learn to hear and to distinguish the voices of our family members and our friends. We spend time with them. We talk to them. We know what they sound like. We know what they would say. And the more time you spend with God in this written, authoritative voice, the more clearly you will be able to distinguish God's spirit speaking to you because he will sound very much the same. Practically speaking, this brings us not only comfort, encouragement, instruction, but ultimately joy. So a British pastor, theologian named Martin Lloyd-Jones, prominent in the middle of the 20th century, and he, in one of his books, Spiritual Depression, makes this observation, don't you realize that most of your problems is because you're spending too much time listening to yourself and not enough time talking to yourself. Now, that may seem odd considering the subject, but it's not. It's appropriate because what we're listening to is the voices that speak to us, whether it's our own, whether it's the world, or whether it is the enemy. And we just listen to that and we get undone. And what he's saying is we need to be speaking to ourselves. What should we be speaking to ourselves? The promises of God. And when we speak the promises of God, it strengthens and secures us. Historically speaking, the illustra- nobody better illustrates this to my understanding than Martin Luther. Martin Luther, who was uh, passionately seeking after God, but was also very aware of his own failings and his own shortcomings. Speaking before uh, a group, he was just testifying to his own somewhat regular experience. And he said that at times the enemy will come and say, Martin, you are a liar and greedy and lecherous and blasphemer. You're a hypocrite and, and you think you can stand before God? And Luther's response to that sense, that accusation and disparaging, here's what he says. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. So what? 
because I know one who suffered and made satisfaction for all of my sins on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. And where he is, that's where I shall be. See, Luther was able to stop listening to himself or to the enemy because he could distinguish the voice of the spirit from the voice of the evil spirit or even his own. And he was able to talk to himself with the promises of God, understanding his relationship was based on his union, that he was the bride of Christ, not based on his failings and his performance. And so not only is he relieved by that thought that he will be with Christ, not only forgiven, but in the glory of God's heaven, is a source of joy. And John the Baptist understood this. And finally, and for the sake of time, I, I won't develop this as much, but it is very much important. The fourth thing that we see, the fourth pillar for foundation is this. There is a significance that comes from living for the glory of God. That's what John is saying in verse 30 when he said, he must increase, I must decrease. What John is saying in more concise words is really the practical answer and demonstrated his life to the first catechism question of our church. What is the primary purpose of man? The answer is the primary purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And, and I actually prefer John Piper's rewriting. Chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. In other words, the fellowship, the unity that we have. And what John understood is that the significance of his life didn't come from the fame, the notoriety, the success, or anything else. It came from recognizing his place in God's redemptive plan. And the place where John was to be the one who came before to point to Jesus, and that part has been done. And he is no less significant now because he understood who he is, who he, how he was gifted, and he saw how his own story fit into God's grand story. And we find the significance in our life, not by outdoing other people, but by recognizing, appreciating how God has gifted us, and then learning how our own individual stories, because every one of your stories, God has grafted you into his big story. Every one of our stories fits into God's plan, and we find our significance not in being the star of our own little show, but of finding our role on that which is greater than anything Broadway can ever do. All of these are very true. All of these are very important, but I'm going to wrap it up with this because as much as these things are true, I've got to confess to you as much as I know these are true, as much as I'm preaching, I'm preaching to myself because so often my life is disconnected from one or more of these pillars. And I would feel very lonely if it wasn't for John the Baptist, something that we kind of skipped over at the very beginning. It's the rest of John's story. John, who was endowed with this understanding, we read something at the very beginning where it said John had not yet been arrested. So if you know John's story, you know what happens after this time. John was arrested, and he was put in prison. And he began to have his world shaken in the same way that I talked about at the very beginning. And he sent one of his disciples to Jesus and said, are you actually the one? Or was there another one? This man who was endowed with the Holy Spirit before he was born, this man who was appointed the forerunner, this man who was endowed with prophetic wisdom, and he, like me, is racked at times with what he understands, 
and doubts. And he's in the dumps because of it. But what is encouraging to me is that John doesn't give us a recipe to become spiritual stars. John tells us the truth and then in his own life bears out the reality that all of us are frail, all of us can be shaken at any time, and that what is necessary is not just being able to rattle off these four points, but continually examine our lives to be able to see whether we are connected to these four points, that we have the stability, the faith, the freedom, the hope, all of the promises that come with the gospel. And that regularly we are looking at ourselves to do this. Because we need to understand that it's those who learn to say, I must decrease so that he might increase. That the Lord is going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we do pray that you would endow us with understanding of what John's wisdom has granted and an ability to discern our own lives that we might continually be reinforced in our connection to these pillars, that we might not only stand strong, but enjoy you and be fruitful for the sake of your kingdom. Bless us in these now, in mind, in heart, and in body, to your glory and the joy that belongs to those who love you. We pray in Christ. Amen.